Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I am finally, finally, after two weeks of being horizontal in bed with COVID, feeling, I would say, 80% like myself. On the up and up? Yes. It takes a long time, I'm realizing, to get your endurance back. I'm not going to be hitting the gym anytime soon. I'm just happy to be around humans and know that I'm not going to be potentially infecting them. We were joking as soon as Lise got on. She has this ring camera light. She's just glowing. (laughs) Perfect eyebrows, bright white teeth. I'm like, you look so good, as always. Last time she had COVID, she had these puffy eye masks on and still looked gorgeous. Well, you're very sweet. It just feels good to shower and put makeup on sometimes when you're not feeling your best. Plus, today's case... um, I'll just say this. I don't want to give too much away, but I cried a lot during the research of this. So I'm surprised I'm not more puffy eyed. Today's case, it's just heartbreaking, but in a way that's a little different than most of the cases we covered. I'm going to cry because I'm a cancer and I cry at the drop of a pin. So I'm glad you gave me a little bit of a warning, but I'm ready, I think, to hear this case. I feel like every time I uncovered a new chapter of this case, I was texting you like, get your tissues ready. This is really, this is really heartbreaking. All the cases we cover are heartbreaking, but like I said, today's is a little different. And because it's a little different, I'm also going to start it a little differently. I want to read a poem called The Clinic. It was published in 1944 by Margaret Young. The warden wept before the lethal beans were dropped that night into the airless room, 50 faces appearing against glass screens, a clinic crowd outside the tomb. In the corridor, a toy train pursued its tracks past countryside and painted station of tiny folk. The doomed man's eyes were glued on these. He was the tearless one, who waited unknowingly why the warden wept and watched the toy train with the prisoner, who watched the train or ate or simply slept. The warden wrote a sorry letter. The man you kill tonight is six years old. He has no idea why he dies. Yet he must die in the room the state has walled, transparent to its glassy eyes. And yet suppose no human is more than he, the highest good to which mankind attains, this dry-eyed child who watches joyously the shining speed of toy trains. What warden weeps in the stony corridor, what mournful eyes are peering through the glass, Who will shut the final door and watch the fume upon a face? Oh, my gosh. It's like so innocent. I have tears in my eyes now after that. Is this this about a six-year-old? The six-year-old man they were referring to is actually 23-year-old Joe Artie. I'm covering the horrific injustice and there's no other way to put it, murder by the justice system of Joe Artie, the man who would go down in history as the happiest man on death row. I got a lot of information from different articles for this case, and I will link those all on our blog page. But the resources that I used the most uh, was an article by Matthew Jarrett for ForgottenHistory.me, the Friends of Joe Artie website, and a book called Deadly Innocence by Robert Persky. Joe Artie was born April 29, 1915 in Pueblo, Colorado. Yes. We are back in Colorado. We always come back to Colorado. Like, (laughs) we don't even try to. No, this was completely unintentional. His parents, Mary and Henry Ardy, were Syrian immigrants that had moved to the United States, like so many immigrants, with the search for the American dream and a better life. Henry found work at the Colorado Fuel and Iron Works. Joe was their first child, and it seemed, at least for a while, that they were going to have that American dream that they were chasing. Joe was described as an incredibly good-natured, And just all-around good kid, he enjoyed playing just like any other child. However, when Joe started school at the age of five, it was clear that he was not at the educational or communication level of his peers. He really wasn't communicating at all. There was a few words, but he wasn't even stringing sentences together at this point. After his first year in school, the principal told Henry, that's Joe's father, that Joe should be kept home because he was incapable of learning. I hate that. I do as well. And I think this is kind of a good time to stop here and just remind our audience that Joe lived in the early 1900s. It was obviously a very different time. And there's going to be language that I use today when I'm quoting people involved in this case that I recognize is wildly offensive today. But at the time, words like idiot, imbecile were used by doctors to describe someone's mental capabilities. So I know how hurtful these words are, 
and and honestly kind of makes me cringe and uncomfortable to even say them. But I think it's really important to directly quote some of the people in positions of authority at this time, as it highlights just how misunderstood people with learning disabilities or people that had a lower intellect truly were and how they were treated. I totally agree. As painful as it is, sometimes you have to just give the story the injustice that you're going to give it, even though nowadays we would never say that. I think it is important as well. So carry on. After the principal told Joe's father that he couldn't return to school, Joe remained at home. Honestly, I think any kid this age would probably be pretty happy about that. He spent the next three years fashioning any old thing around the house into a game or toy and really entertained himself most of the time. And this is going to become a pattern throughout his life. He was happy with just the simplest things. In 1923, Joe's parents had another son. And then the year after, they had a daughter. Now, obviously, having three children to support on one income was not easy. His mom did not work at the time. She was taking care of the home. And his dad was a laborer. So Joe's father began bootlegging. Oh, like making alcohol. That's a bootlegging yeah. is correct. Okay. <laughs> right. So for those who aren't maybe quite as enamored as I am by the 1920s, I'm just going to give you a little brief history so you can understand the time that they lived in. Prohibition began January 17th, 1920, and this was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol. I honestly will probably do an episode covering prohibition. Please do. And some of the things that happened during that time, because it was wild. I mean, I'll just drop a little hint. Did the government poison alcohol on purpose? Maybe. But we'll get to that at a later date. Like I said, I could do an entire episode on the crazy things that went down. But I want today our focus to remain on Joe. So with alcohol being outlawed at the time, but people still enjoying as they do now, escaping their day with a cocktail. There became an underground network of people making and distributing alcohol, and those were called bootleggers. Obviously, I wasn't alive at this time, so I'm kind of putting in my own assumptions here that there was probably a lot more money to be made in this illegal activity of alcohol production than in Henry's previous job with the Ironworks. Especially if there's a need for it, right? Like you said, everyone loves a good cocktail. Everyone's going to want alcohol for the government to kind of shut that off. Boom. You have a whole market of people just waiting for you. And you can also price it accordingly. Yeah. Prices are going to skyrocket when supply and demand is a little bit more challenging. Bootlegging had its risks. Obviously, it was illegal. And Henry was in and out of jail, leaving Mary to look after the home and at times raising all three children completely on her own. Again, they were immigrants, so they didn't have extended family in the area to help. It was really just them against the world. As Joe got older, with his father in and out of the home and his mom looking after his young siblings, he was often found sort of roaming the town of Pueblo completely on his own. His parents were at a loss as to what to do with him because he still could only speak a few words, short sentences, and they just didn't know how to help him. Henry asked his neighbors for advice, who... In some reports, it seemed like the neighbors weren't too fond of Joe just kind of roaming about without guidance. Mm -hmm. And they gave Henry, Joe's dad, the advice to go to the court and petition that his son be committed to a home where he could get the care he needs. At this time, again, I could do a whole episode on what these quote unquote insane asylums were like, but that's for another day. Henry did end up petitioning the court and a judge agreed that Joe needed to be in an institution and he was sent almost 300 miles away to the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives. Yes, that is the title of this home in Grand Junction. Like I said before, I don't really enjoy these phrases. So for the rest of this episode, I'm just going to refer to it as the state home. At this facility, Joe was tested for his intelligence, and they determined Joe had an IQ of around 46. He had the intelligence of about a six-year-old. And how old is he at this time? Do we know? Like a teenager? Not quite yet. I believe at this time he was around like 10 or 11. Okay, so preteen. Right. I also want to point out how the doctors describe Joe because it really lends to why Joe did some of the things that he would do later in this story. Doctors described him as a follower, passive, and very eager to please others. And that's something that I want you to remember because it comes up a lot in this case. Hold on. I'm already going to get chills over this. It just gets worse. 
To us hearing this, it could seem like maybe Harry's dad was being a little cold-hearted, sending Joe 300 miles away from his family to be locked up in this institution. But I think he was just not sure what to do with Joe and thought it'd be the best thing for him at the time. And with him in and out of jail, I think it'd be a lot for Mary, the mom. She has three kids now, no income. So I think he probably was doing what he thought was best in retrospect. Who knows? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, it didn't last very long because Harry missed his son in the fall. Yeah, it's really sweet. So about nine months later, he, like I said, became desperate and was missing his son. So he petitioned the court to have him returned home, to which the judge agreed. Joe went back to his life as he knew it in Pueblo, just roaming the streets, not necessarily bothering anyone but kind of just entertaining and looking after himself the best he could. Because again, while he outwardly looked a certain age, in his mind, he is viewing the entire world through the lens of a six-year-old. This part of the story, I have to give a trigger warning. I'm going to briefly discuss sexual assault. So if you're not in a place to hear about that, of course, check our show notes. I will include the timestamp for where you can pick this part back up. I thought I was done with the research for this episode, and I just happened to stumble across this part of Joe's story that isn't reported on very much. But if you don't count being put, you know, for nine months into this state home, which I'm sure was not a very comfortable living situation, um, this to me is the first time Joe really became a victim and shows just the unjust things that were going on at the time. So when Joe was only 14, he was out wandering like he always did and ended up being cornered by a group of older boys who forced Joe into committing sexual acts with and on them. An officer just happened to be walking past and saw the boys essentially performing sodomy on Joe. Now, did that officer take pity on him? Joe was clearly to me the victim in this situation as he doesn't have the mental capacity to even comprehend much less consent to these types of sexual activities. No. Instead, he wrote a letter to the state home where Joe had been living, and I'm going to read you a direct quote from this letter. The officer said, I picked him up this morning for allowing some of the nastiest and dirtiest things done to him that I have ever heard of. The boy, in all caps, must be returned, referring again to the state home. The people of the neighborhood are indignant as they are afraid of the boy and think he should never have been turned loose. Joe was taken back to the state home because of this letter and put in a ward for sexual deviance. Until 1962, all states had laws against homosexuality and often referred to being intimate with the same sex as deviant behavior. But let's keep this in mind again. This officer did not happen upon a consensual same-sex intimate relationship situation. Joe had the mental awareness of a six-year-old. And we like getting red in the face here. We all understand that a six-year-old cannot consent to a sexual encounter of any kind. But yet Joe is being labeled a sexual deviant for essentially being coerced and having been sexually assaulted by this group of older boys. I also want to point out that during his entire stay in this ward, again for sexual deviance, never once did Joe have any incidents on his file about sexual activity, and sexual activity in this ward even included masturbation. Not one file on his report. That ticks me off. I mean, that's an understatement. I wish you guys could hear my heart through the mic, but we'd have to upgrade my mic a little bit for that. (laughs) This... 14-year-old who is still a boy but has the mental capacity of a six-year-old is being labeled a sexual deviant because older boys, their ages aren't stated, but it referred to them as older, coerced him into doing things he probably didn't understand what was happening. And Pueblo's not that big even now. I'm sure the cop kind of knew the story of Joe and his family. He should have went in there, arrested the other boys, taken Joe home, put him in a safe spot, and, like, taught Joe, hey, the world's not this great place you think it is. Like, you mentioned he was kind of a follower and kind of innocent. Yeah, this is, I feel like the story's about to go really bad. It's just, to me, one of the many times in Joe's life that he would be made out to be something other than the victim in this story. And it's a horribly misguided and misinformed government system. Obviously, a lot of things have changed for the better since this time. But I could not not put that into this story because it just is this pattern for poor Joe that 
he somehow gets labeled all sorts of things that he's not. And really, he is 100% the victim. He didn't Mm -hmm. have a choice in any of this. Now, apparently, this home was next to some railroad tracks that were often used by people as a way to escape. Because again, conditions here are not excellent. This is not staying at a five-star resort by any means. And on August 9th, 1936, Joe, who is now 21 years old, and three other boys escaped and hopped on a train headed back to his hometown. To me, what happens next just kind of points out that the doctors were right in their description of Joe as a follower and eager to please, because he obviously did not mastermind this escape. Once they all got back to Pueblo, the other three headed into town, but Joe, not wanting to disappoint or make anyone mad, hopped back on a train and headed back to Grand Junction. No, the innocence. Okay, that's kind of adorable. He was like, wait, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. Red alert, red alert. Oh. Right? We don't really know what happened during this block of missing time because Joe couldn't remember himself what he was up to. But on August 20th, he was found in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and made friends with a couple called the Gibsons, who allowed Joe to wash dishes for them in the kitchen car of a train in exchange for food. But because Joe was not an actual registered employee of the railroad, the Gibsons had to drive him back to Cheyenne before their train was supposed to move on. So props to the Gibsons for helping out. Joe obviously was in an area on these railroad tracks and trains that he was not supposed to be, So he was arrested by railroad detectives and transferred over to the care of Larmy County Sheriff George Carroll. Sheriff George Carroll had earned a lot of respect and admiration from his time in his service years and was considered to be very trustworthy. However, when this non-communicative drifter Joe was put in his care and he asked Joe where he was from, to which Joe responded, Pueblo, well, that got Sheriff Carroll's interest piqued. You see, there was a major press coverage of two horrific cases out of Pueblo. On August 2nd, 1936, Miss McMurty and her aunt Sally, their home had been broken into at night while they were sleeping. Sally, who was 72, died from skull fractures from a horrible beating with a hammer. And Mrs. McCarty survived the attack but was in very rough shape. I need to point out again the dates these two women were attacked. On August 2nd. But Joe did not escape from the home that he was living in with those other three boys until a week later on August 9th. So clearly, there is no way he could be responsible for a crime that happened 300 miles away while he was under pretty supervised care at this home. Right. He has an airtight alibi. You would think. But on August 15th, three blocks from the home where the two women had been brutally attacked, Dorothy Drain, who was 15, and Barbara Drain, who was 12, were attacked basically the exact same way. Someone snuck in after dark when everyone was asleep. Unfortunately, this night, the two girls' parents were not home. They had gone to a charity event. You know, they were having a night on the town, and we never want to place any fault on anyone here besides the perpetrators of this. Again, Dorothy was 15, so it would make sense at that age she's just babysitting her little sister. Absolutely. Whoever broke into the home attacked the girls with a hatchet and sexually assaulted Dorothy. She unfortunately died during this attack, but her younger sister survived. Her injuries were severe enough, though, that she was in a coma for about two weeks. I don't think it's hard to see the similarities between these two cases, especially, like you said, in a town of Pueblo, which I looked up the U.S. Census for the time. It had a population of around 50,000 people. Obviously, this is going to be the talk about town, and it's going to spread without there being a potential killer on the loose, and police had tons of pressure on them to figure out who was responsible for this and put a stop to it before anyone else got hurt. They questioned suspected sex criminals in the area and put up an award for $1,000 for the information leading to the capture of this perp. I was like, $1,000 doesn't seem like much. But you got to remember. Was it it a ton of money? It was substantial. It it amounts to about $21,000 in today's money. So how the heck does any of this involve Joe? It doesn't. End of story. Nope, we're moving on. Joe's free to go. Annie, I wish. We say that every episode, but I wish the story just ended Mm -hmm. here. But we need to go back over Joe's life up until this point. He was reported as an escapee from a state home that he was being held in, had a record from that officer accusing him of basically being the perpetrator of illegal sexual acts, even though, again, he was really the victim, and he had spent seven years in a ward for sexual deviance. 
Now, if that's all you know about this story, and he says he's from Pueblo, and you find him kind of out of sorts, not knowing where he is, escaping on a train track, I see why you might start questioning this man. And with the mind of a six-year-old, he doesn't understand probably the questions being asked. He's probably very naive about it. Oh, yeah, I live in Pueblo. Yeah, I was actually there. Kind of getting himself in these, like, twists and turns. Because I keep going back to his young mind. Like, I'm thinking, what would a six-year-old say in this position? That's kind of concerning. They would just probably be scared. Right. So with that information and it aligning with the fact that Joe was familiar and known in Pueblo for kind of roaming around as a young boy and teenager, I, again, understand why Officer Carroll got suspicious. And maybe this man who had been wandering the railroad tracks could be the person who committed these crimes in Pueblo and had fled the scene when so much media attention and the reward and all of that was placed on these crimes. So Officer Carroll begins to interview Joe about his possible connection to the murder and sexual assaults. An hour and a half after he began this interview, he called the police chief, Arthur Grady, to tell him, and I quote, We are holding a fellow here who says he killed that little drain girl in your city. He's a nut, can't even read or write, and he's told us two or three different stories, but he seems to know all about that drain murder, and I wouldn't be surprised if he is the man you want, end quote. Well, this was a bit of a shock to this Chief Grady because he was already holding Frank Aguilar on suspicion of murder. Oh. Now, does that name sound familiar? It doesn't to me. It doesn't. Am Didn't I totally missing cover, something? I think in your episode about the missing or cold case of Colorado. Didn't someone have the name Aguilar? That was in the um, 80s, though. Well, right. It's not the same person. I was no. like, well, we have a time traveler on our hands, people. <laughs> I mean, it was in Colorado, so it could be his great-great-grandpa. Oh, Who knows? Uh, that's a good point. We go, we'll start doing family ancestry. But I thought <laughs> that was his name, was it not? I don't know. I'm so into this case. I kind of forgot okay. of everything else. <laughs> like, I need to know the end of this. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a little tangent. ADD. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> Frank Aguilar. Okay. Back to the case. Like I said, this was a bit of a shock because they were already holding Frank Aguilar on suspicion of these murders. Frank had worked for Mr. Drain, the father of the two girls that were attacked, and had been recently fired. Sounds like motive to me. 100%. He also, and if you know anything about especially serial killers, they tend to over-involve themselves in the case. He attended Dorothy's funeral and was acting very suspicious. When police searched his home, they found a hatchet that the coroner said was a match for the cuts to Dorothy's skull. So they have Frank. They have some evidence that he had a suspected murder weapon. And he definitely had potential motive to want to hurt this family. But he had not confessed to anything. And then this Chief Grady gets a call saying that someone else has confessed. So he's a little confused, to put it mildly. But this story is about to get real fishy. Because this supposed confession by Joe... It was never written down. It was never recorded. And obviously, we're going back to the 1920s. So it was usually someone was in the room typing out what the person said. And it was never signed by Joe. So this is a confession, air quotes, where it's a police officer versus Joe. Of course, people are going to believe the police officer. Yeah, of course. And he, again, is a very, very highly respected, trusted person in this community. Oh, I also forgot to mention... There was no witnesses at all. Oh my no gosh. other police officer around who witnessed this confession besides Officer Carroll. He ended up interrogating Joe for over eight hours that day. But again, he's this really respected lawman and apparently has someone in his care that confessed to crimes that only the murderer would know the details that Joe confessed to. So the Pueblo police went to pick up Joe and arrest him. Again, not bothering to wait for proper extradition protocol or investigation. So what was Officer Carroll doing during this time? Running right to the press to play hero. Of course. Mm-hmm. How he had found and gotten the confession of the horrible attacks on these girls. In an interview with the Pueblo Chieftain paper, he said that Joe admitted that he had done this, quote, just out of meanness, end quote. He did interview after interview giving false information about the crimes, because again, he is not in Pueblo. So he wasn't working the investigation of these crimes initially. He is giving false information to the newspapers, but then going back when it didn't align with what actually happened in the case to say he made a, you know, he misspoke and then corrected them. 
And never once was he questioned about his story changing constantly. Oh, I'm sorry. I got to breathe because I'm I'm just getting so mad. He also said that he had to really push Joe during the interview process about the sexual aspects of the crimes and how Joe couldn't stop talking about women. Again, Joe, literally not capable of stringing long sentences together, so it seems a little suspicious that when asked about the sexual nature of the crimes, Joe just starts telling him all about his sexual desire for women. Bullshit. Bleep that out. I'm kidding. Actually, don't no. because it is bullshit. It is bullshit. The weird things continued happening. It just gets more and more suspicious on law enforcement. During this investigation, a pawn shop owner said he had sold a gun to Joseph Artie around the time of the murders. However, Joe's legal name was just Joe, not Joseph. So why the hell would he tell this shop owner his name was Joseph? Oh, and the gun? Yeah, that was never found. And a gun was never used in either of these crimes. It was a hammer and a hatchet. So how does this even correlate? It's feeling like a witch hunt where they're all teaming up against Joe, but they have someone who actually is a person of interest, who has a motive, who's at the funeral, but they're turning a blind eye to that to focus on Joe, which is not okay in any way. I have to, again, throw in that this is just my assumption, but if we take into account what time period this is, we are about to head into the Great Depression. This is a time where people are very tight on money. This isn't a booming economy by any leaps or stretches of the imagination. So $1,000, which again is about 21000 in our money, might be incentive for people to say things that just aren't true. So true. I never thought about that. But that's a really good point. It's pretty widely believed that in order to obtain this confession, investigators gave Joe a lot of leading questions to get him to answer the way that they wanted. I don't know if you've seen Making a Murderer Mm -hmm. on Netflix, but it felt like a deja vu while I was researching this case because you have this impressionable person who's not understanding what the heck is going on or just the, the impact this could have on their life. And again, doctors state that Joe is super eager to please, and these detectives are giving him questions that are literally filling Joe's head with how the murder actually happened. So instead of answering the questions honestly, it's believed that he was just kind of parroting back to the investigators what they had told him, which again, should not be happening. And we're taught to trust law enforcement. So for Joe, he probably was like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm sure they had all the emotions. Good job, Joe. Tell us more. And then did this happen, Joe? Yeah, that happened. I'm just thinking it in my head and it's like really heartbreaking to me. I I see why you said this case is going to make me cry because I'm already like almost there. Yeah, it's it's tough. And if there wasn't enough things that seemed suspicious about this, Joe admitted in his interview. Now, this is his second interview. So he is now in Pueblo. This part, there is a recording of it. So this is documented. He admitted to the attacks on the first two ladies, which should have been a huge red flag to investigators because he could not have done these. He was in a state home 300 miles away. And they just went with it. Never even questioned it. Like, Joe, how, how could you have done this? They just took it down. I get the urgency to get someone off the streets, but get the right person off the streets because they're going to do it again if you don't. Like you said, there was so much pressure from the public to catch this killer that these officers ignored so many signs that Joe was not involved in order to wrap this case up, tie it with a bow and say, we got him. Our streets are safe again. Everyone claps, cheers. But what about Joe? And to make this even easier for them, at this point, they tried to say that Joe and Frank were a team. Oh, my They committed these murders together. On September 2nd, Frank Aguilar, who is and has been in jail on suspicion of these murders, actually confessed. The confession, unlike Joe's, was recorded. He admitted that he knew the parents would not be home that night. He watched them leave and then snuck into the home and attacked the girls. He never mentioned Joe during this confession unless he was asked. The DA who was interviewing him asked some seriously leading questions. For instance, he asked Joe, then Joe assaulted the big girl, didn't he? To which Frank simply just replied, yes. And I want to use an excerpt from the article, The Murder of Joe Already by Matthew Jarrett for ForgottenHistory.me. This is what Frank said about Joe's involvement in the crimes. 
Frank's story went that he met Joe by chance and found out that Joe was a sexual deviant. Frank told Joe about the crime he was planning to commit, and Joe agreed to go along with it. They sat hidden outside the Drain's house and watched for Mr. and Mrs. Drain to leave. After the couple left, they waited 10 or 15 minutes for the children to fall asleep. They broke into the home, found the girl's bedroom, and hit Dorothy several times with a hatchet before Frank began to sexually assault her. In the middle of the sexual assault, Barbara woke up and yelled at them to get out. Frank hit Barbara with the blunt end of the hatchet, which knocked her out. He continued with Dorothy, and once he was done, Joe then sexually assaulted her. Once Joe was done, Frank hit Dorothy again with the hatchet, though she was likely already dead, and they left the house. They split up and never saw each other again. Of course, Joe, being his agreeable self, confirmed his story. Oh, it's so unbelievable to me. And I don't even have a law degree or any kind of police history. I mean, obviously, I'm in marketing and I do a podcast. But the fact that they just let Frank run with it. And Joe's just kind of like a side person here. Like, I did all this. And then Joe was there in the corner. And then I did this. And then it's like, come on, people. Open your eyes. Well, and what about the fact that Officer Carroll, who would have access as the case and investigation went on, access to kind of privy information, would make these statements that were 100% false about how the murders went down and then would go back to those same reporting agencies and correct it as, um, you know, oh, I misspoke. No, you got more information and realized your story was wrong. Those reporters should have called some major bullshit. It's just there's so many instances where you just kind of slap your palm to your head and go, what the hell mm -hmm. are you guys thinking? Frank went to trial for the rape, assault, and murder of Dorothy Drain, the assault to Bethany Drain, and was charged with the assault of Mrs. McCurdy and the assault and murder of Mrs. Crumpley. Bethany, who again was 12 at the time of this, had been in a coma for two weeks, but had recovered way better than doctors expected her to, and she actually testified at trial, identifying Frank. She got down from the stand, walked over, pointed directly, and said, this is him. She identified Frank as the man who had broken into her home and whose face she clearly remembered as the man who woke her from her sleep. It took the jury less than half an hour to convict Frank for every single charge. So what about Joe? Well, funny enough, during Frank's trial, no one asked about Joe. No one talked about Joe's involvement. Even the fact that Frank had said that Joe was involved never got brought up. And Bethany was never asked to identify anyone but Frank, but she never alluded to the fact that there was more than one man present that night in her room. Oh, boy. I don't like this at all, but this next part's going to hurt, isn't it? Yeah. Like, hold on to your chair because you might throw it. Joe's lawyer, and I'm going to give credit where it's due, he really tried. Initially, he entered a plea of not guilty, but I'm just going to assume because they had this confession by this respected police officer, he withdrew that and then put in a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. In Colorado at this time, that meant that Joe's trial had to be put on hold and a separate hearing would decide on Joe's sanity and mental capability. He had three psychologists interview him, and they all reported back that Joe was incapable of understanding right versus wrong, so he thus was incapable of doing anything with criminal intent. That is the definition, basically, of not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. He did not understand the consequences of it. He doesn't have the mental wherefore-all to plot out. Like, can you imagine a six-year-old creating a timeline like they had to of that no. night of, I'm going to overhear that this man and his wife are going to a dance. I'm going to stalk this home, wait for the parents to leave, wait till everyone's sound asleep, and then creep in. Like, six-year-olds don't even have the patience to do no. that. Let's be honest. And to have three different doctors all come to the same conclusion, I think, is really telling. During this hearing, they did something a little risky. They actually put Joe on the stand. His lawyer wanted to ask him 22 simple questions to show the court he clearly should not be deemed sane. He asked if Joe knew what an oath was. Joe responded no. He asked him if he knew what the hearing was about. Again, Joe responded no. He asked, Joe, can you write? Joe responded, sure. He then asked Joe if he could write anything besides his own name, to which Joe responded no. Now, the prosecuting attorney, of course, got to cross-examine Joe, and he really wanted to prove to the court and the jury that Joe did understand what was going on. 
Annie, I want you to tell me what your perspective on these are, because obviously I'm a little biased mm-hmm. going into this. So the lawyer asks, where are you going tonight, Joe? Joe said, back to Grand Junction. Why are you going back to Grand Junction? I like the place. You want to do what you like to do, don't you, Joe? Yes. Do you like girls? Pretty good. With a smile. I'm already getting pissed. I see what the lawyer's trying to do. Probably saying it and like smirking back to the jury. Like, do you see what he just said? He does understand. He likes girls. Okay, you're asking him questions that he's just being innocent about and just, yeah, I'm going back to Grand Junction. I like it there. Yeah, I do like girls. Guess what? He has a mom and he has a sister. Of course, he's going to like girls. Like, you're asking the wrong questions, buddy. Come on. And even him saying you want to do what you like to do, don't you, Joe? We all know where Mm -hmm. that was leading. Everyone but Joe. And of course. Joe doesn't know. Yeah, Joe doesn't know. But we can look at this and go, okay, I get where you're trying to go with that. But what, again, what six-year-old doesn't like to do what they want to do? Right, and you're not saying, do you want to go back and Mm -hmm. guess what? I like gardening and I like eating. You know, he's not asking him specific enough questions to be able to make these assumptions about Joe. And Joe has no idea, which is so, so sad. It is incredibly sad. So then good old Sheriff Carroll, who's not good at all, was asked to give a statement about his experience working with criminals and how he was sure and why he was sure that Joe knows right from wrong and knew what he was confessing to. The jury somehow decided after hearing from three professionals that Joe was not capable of standing trial, that Joe was indeed legally sane and his trial for murder would continue. What? Can you imagine being his lawyer and being like, are you kidding me? Just banging your head on the wall like this is going to end really bad. It's just I, I don't have words. I'm just going to continue the story because I, I truly don't have words. Um, I could honestly go on for an hour about all the misconduct that happened in this case. For instance, the only physical evidence that they had against Joe when his murder trial continued was one single hair that was found at the scene of the crime. Now, we covered DNA, or you did, in your episode, and it wasn't until the 1980s that they could do DNA analysis. For such a, it sounds like a brutal crime scene. Yeah, you're right. Actually, back to your first point, that was probably planted there if they ever found that in the beginning. And who knows if it's Joe's because they didn't even have the testing capabilities to do it then. This is 60 years prior. Did they have microscopes? Sure. So this scientist that looked at this one single hair could identify it as Joe's. Like he said, 100%, this is Joe's. But here's the part that's really going to grind your gears, Annie. Can you guess when this one single hair at the crime scene was discovered? If I were to guess, I would say after it had already all been cleaned up, they happened to go back and find it. Only after Joe was arrested and transferred to Pueblo. Oh my gosh. Or they could easily snip a little piece of his hair and he probably would never know. Like I said, if that even was his hair, because it probably wasn't. Well, and quite frankly, look at my shower drain. I mean, you have access to 400 plus hairs on the daily. I wouldn't even know if you took one. So it's just that by itself might seem like, okay, we can pass that off because they didn't have the forensics like we do now. But it's just one more thing and like a long, long line of fishy investigative work to Mm -hmm. say the very, very least. Now we have to go back to Sheriff Carroll. Somehow, even though Joe's confession was never transcribed or recorded anyway, and I keep harping on that because here's where it's going to really come into play. Sheriff Carroll goes on the stand, and eight months after this supposed interview and confession, he got on the stand and recounted the entire interview, of which he said there was eight hours of, word for word. Somehow recalling every question he asked Joe and Joe's responses, even going so far to mimic Joe's voice. So he's almost poking fun at Joe's intellect during this recollection of a conversation he had eight months ago. Some people have photographic memories. But considering this man can't even keep his story straight that he's telling the press, I find it a little sus that eight months later he can tell you word for word what Joe said. This guy sucks. Also, lying under oath is illegal, buddy. Yeah. I'm going to hand it to Joe's lawyer again. He really tried his best. He brought back the three psychiatrists from the first hearing who testified yet again that Joe was incapable of committing these murders and even brought in the superintendent who was a doctor from the state home where Joe was staying. 
He also testified that Joe was not sane or capable of committing these crimes. Again, Sheriff Carroll's testimony had a huge impact on the jury because they only deliberated for three and a half hours before they came back and found Joe legally sane and guilty of murder. They sentenced him to death by gas chamber. It was reported the next day that Joe had no reaction to the announcement of his conviction or mention of the death verdict. Annie, guess who got the $1,000 reward? Don't tell me the stupid sheriff. Stupid Sheriff Carroll. I hate this guy. So Joe is now on death row. We're going to have a little silver lining in this. I'm, I'm tearing you down. I'm going to build you back Please, up Please, I need any bit. kind of serotonin right now. And whenever you see the pictures, we'll post them on our Instagram. Like, that's like the worst part. He sent it to me prior. And I was like, oh, okay. And then just hearing everything go through it, oh, that makes it so much worse. What Annie is referring to as we sit here staring at each other through Zoom mics crying um, is I didn't want her to look into this case at all or have any context, but I wanted her to see what I was seeing. These beautiful, honestly, mm-hmm. pictures of Joe on death row. And we'll get into like kind of the why behind these pictures. But of course, we'll put the pictures on Instagram so you guys can see them as well. We do have a little bit of a hero in this story. So Joe is on death row and the warden for that jail, Warden Best, which, wow, perfect name for this guy. He befriends Joe. It's immediately clear to him that he is not the hardened, confessed criminal that he was made out in the media to be. He knows that Joe has not been treated fairly. This man took it upon himself to hire Gail Ireland, which I thought was a woman. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed because it said she was one of the best lawyers at the time. It was indeed not a woman. So Mr. Gail Ireland, one of the best lawyers at the time, this warden paid to get him on the Oh, case. he is the best. Ireland was met with one roadblock after another, but he was granted nine stays of execution on behalf of Joe while he investigated and worked on this case. Oh, I don't, I can't believe I'm crying. It's just like you've painted the fir- the perfect picture of Joe. I love him. I want to protect him. And like no one did. People tried. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure his family tried. His lawyer sounds awesome, but he was up against everyone. Like the odds are not in his favor. And that's just not fair. I mean, and especially when you take into account the time period, he is the son of two immigrant mm-hmm. parents and his father had been in uh, jail for just really trying to support right. his family any way he could. And so it's not like they have the power to go against, you know, a respected sheriff. All the odds were truly stacked up against this guy. So Joe was on death row for a year and a half. And from all accounts, he was having like the best. <laughs> the pictures look like he, he's smiling in the pictures. He has some toys in the pictures, like the prisoners that he's with. They seem to really like him as well. Granted, there's only one prisoner I have a picture of, but it just seems happy. And then you hear what's going on and it's it's hard. Yeah. And then he's just unaware mm-hmm. of it. He has no I- idea. So keep in mind, he's not capable of understanding why he was there or probably even that he was being punished. He had a roof over his head, a bed to sleep on and food every day. And Warden Best was being his mm-hmm. best self and being really kind to Joe. So I imagine Joe's kind of thinking like, I've got a good life going here. I told you the warden really, really liked Joe. But here's where, again, he goes a step beyond because all those toys that you see in the picture, those are all gifts brought to him by Warden Best. He would bring him children's books and toys. And there is a report, and this just truly kind of paints the picture of who Joe was. There's a report that Joe used to polish his food tray, which was metal, until he could see it himself in the reflection. And then he would spend hours in his jail cell making funny faces at himself and giggling. Oh like my just gosh. the innocence of that, it, it's just heartbreaking. That's why I keep getting choked up. Warden Best and his wife brought Joe a toy train, which he loved. And he would run the train up and down the hallway of death row. And the inmates, these again, most of the people on death row at this time had to have a confession. So these are not the best Mm -hmm. of people, the majority of them. And they all took part in playing trains with him. Because, I mean, how could you not? I mean, I'm sure there was some bad people. Don't get me wrong. But... Joe was just having the best time. He had made all of these friends. And I wonder if they ever thought, I should be on death row. This person should not be. I'm sure they all, like, had a little bit of empathy for him and was just like, this is not fair. I guess in this point, it's probably sympathy because empathy is if you're, you know, 
They probably had some yeah. sympathy for him. Um, it's reported that they did have a very soft spot for Joe because they would play the trains with him when it ended up rolling into one of their cells. No one ever took his train from him. They would always make sure it got back to him and it was rolled back into his cell at night. Oh. Have you ever watched The Green Mile? <laughs> I have. And this is what it's reminding me of. And it's like, I wonder if The Green yeah. Mile had anything. I've never heard of this story about Joe. I can't imagine The Green Mile has a relation. I'm assuming this happened quite often back then. Possibly. Yeah. But it just reminds me of that, that guy with yeah. the mouse. Okay, pull it together, Elise. The warden even set up interviews with the press. He figured the more we can get Joe's personality and story out there, the better chance we have to get the public on our side. During one interview, Joe told the reporter that he wanted to live here with Warden Best. They asked him, don't you want to return to your home in Grand Junction, referring to the state home? And he replied, no, no, I want to get a life sentence and stay here with Warden Best. At the home, the kids used to beat me. I never get in trouble here. Oh, my gosh. A reporter wrote for the Canyon City newspaper that as the execution date drew near, it was clear that he cannot comprehend that the state wants to take his life. On the day before Joe was to be executed, the warden asked Joe what he wanted for his last meal. He didn't really understand what last meal meant, but he asked him for some ice cream. The warden not only brought him ice cream, but tons of candy, and Joe happily ate some, well, I should say more than some. He got a little bit of a stomach ache because he ate too much ice cream and candy. So after he ate his share and maybe a little extra, he gave it away to all the other inmates to enjoy. So precious. The next morning, Joe's family visited him. Unfortunately, his father had passed away about 11 months prior to this. But his mom obviously broke down in a fit of tears. And Joe didn't seem to understand why. And it actually was very upsetting to him that his mom was crying. So he asked to be returned to his cell. He spent the rest of the day eating more ice cream and playing with his toy train. When the warden came to walk Joe to the gas chamber, Joe stopped to give his train to one of the other inmates. And Annie, that's the picture. Oh, my gosh. He told the inmate about how he soon would be raising chickens and playing the harp. Now, I read that and at first I was like, what is he talking about? And then I'm thinking about the time and maybe some conversations that this warden had with him. And it kind of almost gave me, and again, this is just an assumption, but me being raised in a very religious household, it kind of makes you think of the Bible stories and what heaven's going to be like. Yeah, I hope it gave Joe some comfort. I mean, I know he didn't understand what was happening, but yeah, I can't talk anymore. I'm like puffy yeah. eye and all yeah. the things right now. If you could see <laughs> Anna and I, we're both just a mm -hmm. puddle of tears because it's really, really sad. Um, this is when Warden Best made the statement, which is how we now remember Joe, proclaiming him the happiest man on death row. Joe was executed. Oh, I gotta stop. I told you oh, no. to cry. I don't know why this bothers me so much. It's just like thinking of like... Because you've done such a great job about describing him. So sad. Okay. Whew. Joe was executed on January 6, 1939. The Daily News reported on his execution saying that he walked to his death with the faith of a child and grinned as he was strapped into his death chair. I think it's pretty clear to all of us listening to Joe's story and to me and Annie, who can't stop crying, that Joe did not commit these crimes, but it was not until a poem, the one I read you at the beginning of this episode, that was found in March of 1992 in an out-of-print book by a man named Richard Voorhees that anyone really knew about Joe. This reignited the case and a desire to figure out who this poem was about. I mean, it's not often you hear about this warden mm -hmm. crying. We think of, you know, prison guards as these rough and mm -hmm. tough, you know, men. Then Robert Persky researched Joe's case for nearly two years before publishing his book, which is a fascinating read. It goes into a lot more detail than I can obviously cover in just one episode. His book is called Deadly Innocence. Because of this media coverage, there was a group that was formed. It was called Friends of Joe Artie with a goal to clear Joe Artie's name. Their wish was granted when in 2011, 72 years after Joe was executed or let's call it murder, was, after yeah. Joe was murdered for crimes he did not commit, Colorado Governor Bill Ritter posthumously pardoned Joe Artie saying in a press release, pardoning Mr. Artie cannot undo this tragic event in Colorado history. 
It is in the interest of justice and simple decency, however, to restore his good name. The friends of Joe Artie then raise money to get Joe a new headstone, which features a picture of him playing with his beloved train and the inscription, Here Lies an Innocent Man. And that, with a big, deep exhale and quite a few tears, is the tragic case of Joe Artie. But it just goes to show that sometimes in the pursuit, which is a very noble pursuit of getting justice for these victims, sometimes we just get it horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. The Innocence Project, who I'm sure most of our audience is familiar with, works to get wrongful convictions overturned and release inmates that were found guilty of crimes Uh they didn't commit. The Innocence Project released a study in 2014 that said it's estimated, and this is a low estimate by them, that 4% of death row inmates are innocent. The Innocence Project has gotten 239 clients exonerated to date, with 10% of those being exonerated were sentenced to That's a high number. 4% is 4% too many. Unless you are without a shadow of a doubt, you should not be on death row. Like, and the fact there's, what, 239 people, you said, that have been exonerated? Right, and 10% of those were on death row. If you take every prisoner, I know that those numbers don't actually seem that high, but like you said, 4% is 4% too many. And we're not going to get everything right. And obviously forensics Mm -hmm. changes and stuff all the time. But I think that's why it's so important to cover these cases and shed light on the groups that are doing so much to make sure that with modern forensic testing and a focus on making sure that there isn't racial bigotry and bias going into the sentencing of innocent people. (sighs) That was a heavy one for me to cover. We're going to share the images that I shared with Annie because if you just look at this man's face, it is like looking at a child's. He's happy. He's friendly. He has like a good aura. I mean, I know it's just a photo, but you can just tell that looking at the photo that he was an amazing person. And this is not fair, but I am glad there's a little bit of something done. The governor saying he was innocent and getting a new tombstone and all that stuff. But doesn't make up for their horrible injustice done to him. No, I mean, he was in his 20s. He had a very, very long life to lead, I'm sure. And obviously, in just a year and a half on death row, his life touched people that probably, like I said before, deserved to be there and had done Mm -hmm. some pretty terrible things. And for them to be so touched by him in a short amount of time, I can't imagine the impact potentially he could have had with the rest of his life if he was allowed the opportunity to have a life. I hope no one was driving to work listening to that because you might need to go reapply and kind of fix your face a little bit because that was a heavy one. We will be back soon with a case I know Annie is very excited to share with you. I want to thank everyone who has not only taken the time to listen to this podcast. I'm speaking for Annie and myself when I say this. It's not lost on us that it's a huge ask to take an hour or more out of your week to give up your favorite entertainment sources that you're comfortable Mm -hmm. with, you know, (laughs) that you've heard their voices forever and to give us a try. And we just want to thank you for that. To those who have really gone above and beyond and rated and wrote a review of this podcast, I think unless you're on this side of it, it might be hard to understand how much that means to us because that really helps us grow this podcast and reach a larger audience. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I look forward to hearing Annie's case this week. But as always, until then.